Hi, my name's Beth Murray. If you would stand with me as I read the scripture for today, it is from Judges 3, and it's a very interesting story. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, the, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into Ehud's, or Iliad's belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth, for reading that for us. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you this morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, we're so glad to have you with us today. If you're not already there, if you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 3, uh, just so you can kind of see some of the surrounding context of, uh, of what's going on in this story today. And as Beth closed us with those words, uh, every week we do this, she reminded us, this is the word of the Lord. This was given to us for a particular purpose, and hopefully, throughout the course of the morning, we'll figure out exactly what that is. But let me just, by a quick raise of hands, how many of you have heard that story before? Okay. How many of you have heard it preached in a, in a Sunday morning before? Okay. All right. That's about right. Okay, good. Good. We'll figure this out together. Uh, it is, uh, there's a tendency, I think, within the church, broadly speaking, to have an, kind of an unspoken agreement that we don't talk about things that are too violent or too risque. It's the reason why so many churches kind of shy away from talking about books like Song of Solomon or even like the study that we're in today. Um, but as we come to texts like this, there's a reminder uh, for us that it is given by God. Because immediately the question that comes to our minds is why does God include this in his word? Like, why this story? It's violent, 
It's very graphic. It's exceedingly descriptive to the point where we're like, I think we, I think we get it. I'm not sure that we need all the detail that we've been given. But he keeps going with all of the detail. It's the opposite in some ways of what we might expect from a Bible story, or at least from a Sunday gathering where the people of God are gathered together. But if it's true that all Scripture is given by God and is good for, uh, is inspired by Him and is profitable and good for us to learn, then the responsibility that falls to us is not to ask whether or not we should study it. Rather, the question that should fall to us is, what is it that God might have us learn from it? And as we've talked about, even in just the couple of weeks that we've been in this book, the hero that is on display in these stories is God himself. Even if that story is told through the lens of an assassin and a violent, oppressing, fat king. God's words, not mine. This is God, through unexpected people and unusual means, providing for his people, his covenant people that he loved and pursued and saved and called. It's him once again rescuing them from danger and delivering them from oppressors, even, by the way, when his people were themselves at fault for allowing themselves to be put in these scenarios. Because what we find in the book of Judges is that over and over and over again, God's covenant people who he had faithfully delivered and faithfully provided for run away from him and find themselves once again in desperate need. And God had given them a pathway to freedom and flourishing. He'd given them land. He'd given them food. He'd given them a home. They were to take this land that God had given them and drive out the Canaanites, but because they didn't trust God to actually deliver on his promise, they decided to disobey. They left the Canaanites where they were. They ended up intermarrying with them. Their children very quickly and predictably abandoned the God who had delivered them to this point. And so God raises up these judges as a means of deliverance as a means of correcting the people that had forgotten the truth and the goodness of God, and as a means also of helping remind them of the calling and the obligation that God had given them. And if you read chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 through 11, you find this pattern that continues to be carried out through the course of this book. The people had begun to worship Baal and Ashtaroth, as Dave addressed last week. God allows them then to fall into slavery. The people cry out to God. God delivers them by bringing them a judge, and the people have peace for a generation. And that pattern that is what we find continuing throughout this book. The people of Israel turn to false gods. The judges bring deliverance and bring salvation. The people respond. They experience peace. They forget God's goodness. They turn back to false gods, and they're in the same boat again. And we pick up this morning in the middle of that pattern with this story, beginning with verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the first thing we see here is that Eglon, this evil king, who is most distinguished by feature of his mammoth size, was actively used by God as a means of bringing correction to his people. It says that God strengthened Eglon. God, in his providence, in his ordination of all things, actually strengthens and raises up a king whose purpose is to put the people of God into oppression and into suffering. It's a very uncomfortable idea 
for anybody, but particularly modern people who are obsessed with the idea of defining for God how his goodness must present itself and what it means for him to actually be a kind and loving God. And this is an example of what we find all throughout Scripture where there is this constant refrain that it's God himself who raises up and then takes down leaders for his own purposes, whether or not we understand what those purposes are. That the rulers and the conditions in which we live, listen, the rulers and conditions in which we live are ordained by God's hand. So Proverbs chapter 21 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wants it to go. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7, God says, I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he says, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. In other words, the situations in which we find ourselves are not mere happenstance. We have not accidentally experienced the things we've experienced in this life. The book of Acts is going to say that the times and the places in which we live are actually ordained by God. In other words, you were born when you were born to the family you were born to in the circumstances that you experienced with the upbringing that you had, hardship or blessing, all of that God was going to use for a particular purpose and reason. And even as we find ourselves in national and international circumstances that are hard for us to fathom and hard for us to reason with, we understand that in God's divine purposes, again, whether or not we see or understand why he does it, there is a purpose and a design in it. And the same thing, by the way, is true of our leaders today. As we come yet again into a seemingly endless election season, and the vagaries and the complexities and the anxieties begin to arise in us as we see the state of things around us, regardless of where you find yourself on the political spectrum, there is a reminder that the question for us is never, will the person God wants to be in office be appointed? The answer to that question is always yes. It's not even a question we need to ask. Rather, the question that we need to ask is, will that person be a means of God's blessing or a means of his correction? What is it that he's trying to relate to us, trying to help us understand, trying to reveal to us through it, even if that lesson is solely that we cannot put our faith, our confidence, or our hope in any person? And immediately, our minds begin to run to the objections. Well, why does God have to do it that way? Couldn't he just bring blessing? Couldn't he show his goodness and through his goodness bring people to himself? Well, God can certainly do whatever he wants to do, but what we find in this text is that God had shown himself to be unbelievably faithful to these people despite their own rejection and faithlessness toward him. And in giving them a season of 40 years of peace and prosperity, 40 years of blessing that could only be attributed to the hand of God, these people once again rejected him. And as Dave talked about at length last week, what is truly loving of God is to do whatever he needs to do in order to get our attention and to bring us to himself. 
we do not get to define for God what it looks like for him to be loving because anything that leads to our ultimate salvation, our growth in him, and a deepening understanding of who God is, is ultimately a means of his love in our life. And everything within us recoils at that. It's the same question that we begin to ask when we say, how could a good and generous God allow X to happen? And the answer to that is not that difficulty in our lives is always related to discipline. We find that out in the book of John, for instance, when Jesus and the disciples are are walking and they encounter a man who's been blind since his birth. And the disciples ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the answer of Jesus in John chapter 9 is, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, the experiences that we have in our life are not always God's correction or God's discipline. They may have nothing to do necessarily with specific sins in our lives, but rather that God simply allows for his own good purposes so that through those things, people might be pointed to him. And yes, we know from the book of Romans that what Christians experience is never punishment, but rather may be a means of God correcting and lovingly disciplining so as to bring our attention and our affections back to him. See, these people had experienced the grace and the goodness of God for 40 years, but after 40 years, they stopped attributing the good things that they had to the Lord. And I wonder in our own lives how often we experience good and gracious things, the natural everyday gifts of a loving God in our life and never take a moment to stop and either recognize or even thank him for the good things that we have. When was the last time we woke up in a safe warm bed, in a comfortable residence, with relative health, whatever that means, and stop to think, God, thank you once again for giving this to me. But there are so many small, everyday, seemingly insignificant blessings that are in fact demonstrations of God's divine goodness and love toward you. And if we don't recognize those things, we will inevitably find ourselves exactly where the Israelites found themselves beginning to think of those good things not as a demonstration of God's loving kindness towards us, but rather as something that we are owed by the mere virtue of our own existence. That I am owed a happy life, that I am owed good health, that I am owed a comfortable residence, that I am owed a certain standard of living, relative peace in my life. And as soon as we do that, We create all sorts of problems for ourselves because when hard times inevitably come into our path, we will not see them as an opportunity to see God's hand moving or see the lesson that he might teach us, but rather see it as an infringement upon what we are owed. How dare God interrupt the comfort of my life? Who does he think he is? And that is exactly what these Israelites had done. But remember God is never, ever punitive towards his children. Everything that he does is working towards the restoration of his people and the salvation of his people. And look what he does beginning in verse 5. Then, after 40 years of peace 
ending in rebellion against God and the worshiping in false idols, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They remembered him. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. So the people realize we've made a huge mistake. We might not have remembered exactly how good God has been to us this entire time. Let's call out to him once again and just see if we can get him to answer. But notice, by the way, that everything that's about to happen in this very unusual story, at least to our reading, everything that's about to happen for their deliverance had already been in the works long before it even occurred to them to call out to God. God was working out for them the means of their salvation long before it occurred to them to ask for help. Because it says that God had raised Ehud, a left-handed man, to be their deliverer. In other words, this man had been born decades before the people of God even thought to turn to him. And God had planned every single facet of who Ehud was going to be in order to bring deliverance to his people from this most unexpected method. In other words, God is not one who is just waiting for things in your life to go exactly the right way in order to intervene. He is not waiting for you to clean yourself up and figure things out and do right before he will intervene in your life. He is not waiting for you to fix yourself and make yourself presentable to him in order to bring salvation and deliverance. He finds you in the middle of your mess at your very lowest point, and only then do you realize that he has already been working behind the scenes in ways that you could hardly fathom to bring about your salvation and your deliverance. And thank God he does. Because the lesson of this story is summed up well by Dale Ralph David, who writes this. He says, Our Lord is trying to boom into your ears with all sorts of exclamation marks. See how I delight to save you in all your troubles? And he goes on to say, Aren't some of you who read this text in such circumstances at the moment so that this is precisely the good news you need to hear? That in your troubles, listen, whether a result of your sins or not, you have a compassionate God who actually hears your cries for help and comes to save you in your distress. In other words, even when the hardship that you're experiencing is born of consequences that you have brought onto yourself, through your own disobedience, your own lack of faith, your own rejection, and your own rebellion, God still delights in bringing rescue. He's like a father who, upon discovering that his child has gotten lost after being told not to go too far on his own, doesn't stop and say, well, I told him not to do this, so this is what he gets, but rather sprints with reckless abandon to track down and embrace his wandering child. And as it relates to Ehud, notice that there is nothing about you. As demonstrated in this man, there is nothing about who God has created you to be that is a mistake in the eyes of God. 
the text specifies several very unusual things. It specifies who he was born to, ultimately so that we could see the lineage into which he was born. And it says that he is left-handed and that he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's noteworthy because the word Benjamin, the name Benjamin, if you remember, this is the youngest son of Jacob. The name Benjamin literally means son of the right hand. This is God in some way or another showing a sense of humor and a sense of irony in a means of providing protection, provision, and deliverance for his own people. This is a time when warriors were trained to fight right-handed, whether or not you were right-handed. This is a time in which to be left-handed was considered to be, was considered to be something of a handicap, something of a limitation. And here's the reason that I mention all this. We'll see how all this plays out in the story, but here's the reason that I mention that. In the case of Ehud, even his genetic makeup down to his left-handedness had a purpose. And though that purpose may not be as explicit in your life as it was in Ehud's, you can rest assured that everything from your physical makeup to your emotional wiring to your intellectual acuity has a purpose and a plan according to God. And it is a good and right thing for us to recognize because we are very good at the game of comparison and realizing what we lack as compared to other people. We wish we had somebody else's build. We wish we had their makeup. We wish we had their intelligence. We wish they had, we had their giftings and their abilities. We wish we had their relative health or their good looks or their height. Our natural tendency is to be, or is to desire to be rather, what we are not. The story of Ehud is reminding us that the way you are wired, who you are, everything about you, is not an accident, but has a very particular purpose in the plan of God. And the beauty of that, brother and sister, is that though God doesn't need us in order to accomplish his will at all, he delights in using us. Do you realize that the the situation in which you find yourself in life, the places you work, the family you have, the skill sets and limitations you've been given, the personality that you wish was different in one way or another is exactly who God has created you to be in order to accomplish his good will and his good purpose. That he has put you with the wiring that you have and the makeup of who you are in the situations in which you find yourself for a very particular reason. And our tendency is to look at the gifts and the abilities of other people and say, man, if I could just, if I could be more like that woman over there, if I could have her intelligence or if I could have, have her abilities, maybe then I could accomplish something. If I had that guy's business acumen or his speaking ability or his I had his sense of things, maybe then God could really use me. And our tendency is to try to artificially limit how God might use us by declaring ourselves to be deficient. And do you realize that the greatest leaders, at least humanly speaking, that we find throughout the scripture are people who had all sorts of limitations? Moses, arguably the greatest leader in the history of Israel, was a man who didn't want the job. He said, I'm terrible at public speaking, and I'm terrified to get in front of people. And I stand in front of them, and I freeze, and I don't know what to say, and I'm uncomfortable. And God says, it's you that I want to do this job. Paul, who writes a third of the New Testament, 
as a man who has all kinds of physical limitations, according to scripture, is not a man who was anything to look at. He was most likely nearly blind by the end of his life. And yet God use him, uses him rather as maybe the most effective evangelist the world has ever seen. And the reason God does this time and time again is he refuses to allow you to take credit for what only he can do. Because the problem is, if you get to take credit for what God does in and through you, then you also have to take the blame for what you see as your own deficiencies and failures. And God is saying, don't worry about the results and don't worry about how things play out. You be faithful with what I've called you to do. You trust me to provide what only I can provide and faithfully step out in the areas and the things that I've called you to do and let me deal with the rest. Give me the credit and allow me to handle the things that look like failures to you. And he does exactly that in the life of Ehud. And notice what this plan was for Ehud beginning at the end of verse 15. The people of Israel, as those who'd been enslaved and occupied by these people and by, by Eglon in particular, they sent tribute by Ehud to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So the author here is setting the scene. Imagine the picture. Ehud is leading a whole whole group of individuals from the nation of Israel who are presenting this tribute to Eglon, their dominant oppressor, the king who they they had been forced to serve. They're carrying all these gifts, all of these lavish gifts and presents to him, even as they were in the middle of their own depression, not having enough of anything. They're being forced to give these gifts, and Ehud is leading them on the way. They give the gifts. They turn to leave. Everybody leaves except for Ehud, who turns back. And notice what it says in verse 19. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Now catch this. Nothing in the story, the reason that we have all of this rich detail about this unusual story, is because all of it matters. The Holy Spirit, through his inspiration in the life of the author who records this, specifies that it was at the moment that he stepped near the idols that Ehud turns around to deliver this message. God is painting for us an artistic scene. This is a movie playing out before our eyes, and everything in it is meaningful. And the servants of Israel leave after delivering the tribute, and Ehud stops to say, I have one more message for you, a secret message, king. And so Eglon sends all of his servants out of the room. And immediately our minds might begin to wonder, why in the world would a messenger from an oppressed people be left alone with the king? And this is where Ehud's left-handedness comes in. Because remember, at this time, if you were a soldier, if you were trained in warfare, it meant you were trained as a right-handed fighter. 
And on top of that, Eglon knew that Ehud came from the tribe of Benjamin, and he knew that what that meant quite literally was, this was a man who was a son of the right hand. And so when all of these people came in, they very likely would have been searched for weapons to make sure that they were safe. But the way that it would have typically been done at this time is they would have checked the left hip of the individual coming in to make sure that they weren't able to draw a sword with their right hand. And so very likely they had checked Ehud and he came up clean for a weapon. He's left alone with audience with Aglon. And it says that he had a double-edged sword attached to his thigh. And what's interesting about that word is if you were to look at it in the original Hebrew and translate it directly, it doesn't actually translate directly as double-edged. It literally translates as two-mouthed. A two-mouthed sword. It's unusual language. It's language that we're not familiar with, but it seems here that the author is specifying the actual build of the blade to point out the irony of what's happening to the people of God. He's saying to the people of Israel, do you see what's happening in this story? A man that nobody would have expected God to use is being used in this unbelievable way, and he's about to kill this very fat king whose life had been one of indulgence with a two-mouthed sword. As one commentator said, the two-mouthed sword is about to devour the very fat king. And as another commentator points out, it's almost at this point as if the narrative goes into slow motion. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right, right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants of Eglon came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Listen, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols, and escaped to Sarah. All of this description is so graphic. And you've now heard it twice, so we don't need to go into much more detail, but you can imagine the picture. He removes the sword, he thrusts it into the belly of Eglon so deeply, in fact, that the intestines themselves are pierced at this point. Eglon collapses on the ground. He's sitting in this cool roof chamber, which is very likely a restroom. And at this point, Ehud goes over, he locks the doors, he escapes. The servants are waiting and waiting and waiting for the king, and they assume, well, this is our boss, and he's in the restroom, we should probably leave him alone. And so they do for an inordinate amount of time, and then through their own embarrassment, they finally get a key and enter in the room, and they discover this. A rather inauspicious end to Eglon the Fat. Now, why all of this detail? because God is sending a message here. He's sending a message 
that while he may allow wicked people to rise to power in order to accomplish his will, he also will not hold them unaccountable for their sins against the people. It was God who raised up Eglon. And so the reader who looks at this text might say, well, how in the world could God judge Eglon when Eglon was just doing exactly what God had allowed him to do? And the point of the text is God can use whatever means he desires in order to bring things about, but that does not, uh, does not release individuals from their responsibility to God. He had dominated and oppressed and murdered and enslaved the people of Israel. These were the beloved covenant people of God. God had their back. He had, he had them in mind. He was not going to allow this to continue uncorrected. And in fact, the message is so strong that Eglon dies in a way that is completely lacking of any sort of honor. He literally dies in the bathroom in a pool of his own filth. It's quite a disgusting description. That this man whose life had been one of total indulgence now finds himself humiliated in his death because of the very indulgence in which he had participated. Do you remember back to Judges chapter 2, verse 1, when God said, I swore to your fathers, I will never break my covenant with you. I will, I will be your God and you will be my people. Your enemies, said God, will be my enemies. And here in this text, he's bringing that out. But also, this text serves as a warning to the people of God to the, that to the extent to which God is willing to go in order to bring about their salvation. See, if God would have allowed the Israelites to continue in their Baal worship unabated, they would have lived more comfortable lives. But ultimately, leaving them to their own devices was going to lead them into their spiritual death. And God is infinitely more concerned with our eternal spiritual well-being than our perceived momentary comfort. This is what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says when the author writes, for the moment, when you're in the middle of it, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And this text serves as well as a warning to the enemies of God's people. In the mind of Eglon, he had already won the war. He had dominated the people of God for the last 20 years. And they were so subservient that they were bringing him tribute. Certainly, he thought, these people face, these people rather present no, no threat to me whatsoever. Their God means nothing to me. But God is the defender of the weak. He is all-powerful and he will not be mocked. And just as much as God ordained Eglon's rise as a means of bringing discipline to his people, he also ordained Ehud's rise as a means of bringing punishment to Eglon. So what do we take away from this? what we take away is that God is so good that even when we are in the middle of rebellion and disobedience, he has already established and ordained his own good, loving purposes to rescue us. 
that he is not put off like an irritated human father. That he is not willing to allow us to continue without interruption. But loves us so much that even in the midst of hardship, even in the middle of hardship that we ourselves have created, where we're experiencing the consequences of our own sinful and wrong decisions, God is still going, do you see how much I love you? You have not ceased to be my son. You have not ceased to be my daughter. You have not ceased to be love. I have not drifted away from you. I have not forgotten you. I have not abandoned you. I have not left you alone. I've often said that one of the things that amazes me about who our God is is not that he can love rebellious, wicked people who grow up not knowing who God is. And maybe it's just my upbringing and my own religious experiences, but for whatever reason or another, that doesn't seem weird to me. But what seems so strange to me is that God continues to love me when I sin and rebel, even as a Christian. When I do for the tenth or the hundredth or the thousandth time what I know I'm not supposed to do. When I hear God's voice saying, Jonathan, don't do that, and I say, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway that somehow God is so loving that he can still love me even in that moment. That's what's crazy to me. And what's so beautiful about the whole arc of the Old Testament and the book of Judges in particular is that over and over and over again, it is God revealing that exact same message. You're going to rebel and you're going to forget and you're going to ignore my goodness and you're going to go off and worship other things and be distracted by other things and you're going to be satisfied with momentary comforts. And even in that moment, I'm not going to stop loving you. And even in that moment, in ways you can't imagine and wouldn't have predicted, I'm going to establish everything in your life as a means of demonstrating to you how much I care about you, how much I want to pursue you, and how much your salvation means to me. God didn't wait for the cries of the Israelites to begin putting a plan together. At the moment where everything already seemed lost to them, he had already put his plan into motion. And in Jesus Christ, God has done the very same thing for us. It's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5, where he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us question that you've heard us pose on multiple occasions is, when Jesus Christ died on the cross some 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins had you committed yet? And the answer, of course, is none. Which means that God, in his goodness, looked forward into the annals of time, saw who you were going to be, and in his loving, sacrificial kindness, sent his own son to die on the cross for sins that you had yet to commit. Which means where you sit right now, if you're in Christ, the sins that you haven't even yet committed have already been forgiven. So that in the moment when you sin them, You don't have to wonder, does God still love me? But you can run back to the Father who is lovingly pursuing and chasing you. 
And if God did that in order to bring about your eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, then you can rest assured that where you stand now as a beloved child of God, even in the middle of your failure and your self-made mess, he is faithful to rescue and redeem. That there is nowhere you can go that is beyond his loving reach. That there is no sin you can commit that will tear his hand away. And while there very well may be painful results of the sin in which we indulge, we can stand assured that Jesus will never, ever break his covenant love with us. So when you read these very strange stories and begin to wonder why in the world does God give us this? Realize that even in the middle of that, what he is trying to reveal is his eternal, covenantal, pursuing, redeeming love for you. The story of an assassin and a fat king is given to show you that God loves you where you are now. And that is an incredible gift of a loving God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which your word stretches our understanding, pushes against our comfort level. But God, then in all of that, you're not just doing it for mere shock factor, but you're revealing an eternal plan of redemption for the people that you came to save. And whether that was Old Testament Israel or modern saints, you are in the business of doing for ourselves what only you can do, rescuing us from the middle of our self-made mess. God, we are thank thankful that you do not forget about us, that you do not walk away from us, that your love for us is not dependent on our ability to perform, but that even when it seems like all is lost and when we are furthest from you, you have actually, in your goodness and in your love, been working out all things together for the good of those who love you and those who are called according to your purpose. So we thank you that none of our pain, even the self-inflicted pain, none of it is wasted in your economy. And we pray, God, for those brothers and sisters this morning who may be struggling with their own identities, struggling with whether or not they are loved, struggling with whether or not they can possibly be loved by virtue of the situations in which they find themselves, or those who are here this morning who don't know you and are in fear of what it means to be standing as sinful people in front of an almighty and righteous God. Would today be the day where they would recognize each the gift that it is to receive salvation through your son, Jesus Christ the forgiveness of sins, new life, adoption into your family, eternal love that begins here and continues forever. So teach us what you'd have us to learn this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.